Her work has created imaginative settings on stages across the country, but for today's teenaged and young adult audiences, she's perhaps best known for the rock musicals Spring Awakening and American Idiot. She's also artistic director of the compelling Theater for One, which most recently was on location in Times Square, attracting all kinds of attention. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm very pleased to speak with scenic designer Christine Jones. Hi, Hi Christine. Hi. So let's start with American Idiot. Um, this is a show that began as a rock album, not originally conceived for the stage. What was the process of it coming to the stage and when did you come into that process? Well, I think the first light bulb was within Michael Mayer, who, as has been reported, was listening to the album frequently and sort of driving down the highway and it was his idea to turn it into a stage production. And he said to me the other day, you know, when I had this idea, the first person I called was Tom Kitt. The second person I called was Jim Carnahan, and the third, fourth, and fifth was you, Kevin, and uh, I don't actually remember who the other person was. But um, so Michael Mayer brought me on board, and you know, you get phone calls sometimes, and people say, "Would you like to do this project?" And sometimes you pause, and sometimes you just know instantly that this is something you want to do. And American Idiot is definitely one of those instantaneous yeses. Is that because you knew the album already? Um, it was because I knew the album a little bit and I knew Michael a lot and the combination felt right. And I sort of, you know, I came to New York from Montreal and in Montreal, the kinds of work that got me passionate about the idea of making theater were productions that were blends of music and dance and multimedia and it's always been at the heart of what I hope to do and I think I just instantly knew that this was a project that could um, you know sort of just explore a very physical theater a multimedia theater and one that had music at its center well you say you knew that at the point at which Michael, called you, whether you were third or fourth, um, was there, had they already worked out the script? Had they already plotted out the show or were they still figuring out what it might be? I think they were still figuring it out. Michael might have had a, a preliminary draft. I think he knew early on that he wanted to use the inserts, the dialogue inserts that are sort of written journal entries that Billy Joe had done that are in the album. I think he knew that that was a part of it and there may have been sort of a rough draft. But I think we all started, you know, around the same time. I mean, Michael probably did a couple of years of preliminary work with Tom Hulse in terms of just figuring out if it was possible. Right. Tom and if being the, the, one of the producers Tom Hulse of the being show. one of the producers, whether it was even something that could be entertained. And Michael and Tom contacted the band or the band's people to see if this was even something that, that might be possible. So um, I think that was sort of the early work that was done. And then as soon as that seemed like it might happen, then we started going into the studio and into the rehearsal room and experimenting 
simultaneously. Well, that's what I'm curious about because it's not as if you got a call to do Hamlet mm-hmm. and you know right off what the material is. You may have known the album, but you it sounds like even as a designer, you came into the process before the piece was fully formed. It wasn't coming in, you know, reading a script and saying, now let's go to work on it. So what was the process for you and what input did you have in terms of creating the entirety of of American Idiot when we go and see it on stage? Well, it wasn't fully formed as a script, but the album is a fully formed album. And it had an an incredible amount of integrity from the beginning. And one of the very first things that happened was that Michael brought all of the the team, including the designers, the producers, the actors, into a recording studio. And they staged – and when I say staged, I mean they really just sort of performed – I think it was three of the songs from the album in a recording studio for the band. And – we all just really started with the music. The music was just always at the center of what we were doing. So just being in the room in a recording studio, just listening to the music with the band, with the actors, and experimenting in the most kind of preliminary way with how are people grouped even in the recording studio and do they stand or do they sit? Do they look at each other? Do they face forward? Um you know that was some of the the very the very early work that we did but i think i don't know there's something about working on pieces that have music at their center um spring awakening was like this that you're you have this album that you can listen to while you work that just kind of drives the whole project forward so even though there's not necessarily a fully devised script there's this there's this energy and this pulse that that informs you in a really visceral way from the very beginning. Now, when you started working on the show, we should say it didn't start on Broadway. Mm-hmm. You were first out at Berkeley Rep. Yeah. Um, when you were designing it for Berkeley, was it is what we see now on Broadway what it was at Berkeley first of all? Pretty much, because actually between that first recording studio workshop, there were two other workshops, I believe in which we worked in a rehearsal room and started staging. So Stephen Hoggett, the choreographer, was brought into the team, and Michael and I started thinking about what the space was like and what the elements in the space were, and we started putting it up on its feet, as they say. Um, so there was there was sort of a, a great exploration process that happened in those workshops as well. And by the time we got to Berkeley, because of that workshop work we had done, we actually had a pretty clear sense of what the identity of the physical space was. So what we did in Berkeley was almost identical to what came to be on Broadway. Well, the physical space is so soaring and so huge in terms of the space. And then within the space – for, again, for those who haven't seen it, it's not that there are fully realized, true-to-life set pieces. You've kind of created an environment in which the show is played out. And those soaring walls are punctuated by video screens mm-hmm. all over. Was the video an element that Michael wanted to bring in? Was it something you wanted to bring in? Where did that come from? 
I think we just knew early on that, you know, much of the album was a response to the media and to, um, you know, the politics of the time that the album was written. And we just sort of knew early on that that was a presence. And um, as we created the space, we we felt like the televisions and what the televisions were communicating was an essential part of what the the tension, the dramatic tension was. So we had the idea to kind of populate the space with these monitors. And then as the physical space developed, we realized that we could also explore larger scale projections in addition to just the video monitors. And then we started thinking about you know, who the right person to bring on board for that element was. Well, that brings up an interesting question. It's something that's being discussed a lot these days, which is the relationship of certainly projection design, uh, in this case, video and projection design. Daryl Maloney Mm -hmm. ultimately was brought on board. Does that work happen in tandem with you? Is that work that to some degree you're directing, how does how does that balance work? Well, I think it's probably a little bit different for every project, but in this case, we actually created the physical space. Um, it just, it all came together fluidly and sort of, I don't want to say easily, except that just we, we sort of knew right away. Um, I pulled together some research and very quickly the physical environment evolved and we knew it had these monitors, and we knew it was it was large and it was messy. Um, so from the beginning, we had this space, and then we went to the the video and the projection designer. And I think that the role of the video and the projection designer is is really equal to the role of any other collaborator, and that we do need to start considering their place in our fabric, Um, like a lighting designer or a costume designer or a set designer. They are independent storytellers that work within the collaborative relationship. And so once we brought Daryl on board, like every other, you know, every other, um, every other part of it, we all sat in a room together, costumes, lights, Michael, uh, the stage manager, and just started talking through the show and figuring out how we collectively could tell the story. And what was the role of Green Day? Billy Joe Armstrong certainly is credited with the book. How much were these guys in the process throughout? How much was it you would go off and create and they would come in and see what you'd done with, or depending on their feelings too, mm-hmm. their their original creation? I think that the band was incredibly generous and trusting of Michael. Once we did the initial workshops and they sort of had a good gut feeling about what was happening, they would step back and let Michael work and let us work and then come back and respond to what was happening. So it was kind of the perfect balance of being involved and offering their feelings and their responses, but then also stepping way back and allowing whatever was going to happen, happen. Did they have any understanding of the theater process prior to this? I don't think so. I mean, when you go to see a Green Day show, you realize how theatrical it is and 
you know, there's a relationship with the audience. There are certain pieces that they do. You know, there's the moment where they grab somebody from the audience and pull them on stage. I mean, they've thought through what they're doing in a theatrical and dramatic way. But I think that um, that many aspects of how we create theater were new to them. And so they just, they in a very humble way sort of stepped back and said, do what you're doing and then we'll come and see and we'll offer whatever we can. They were incredibly supportive in terms of the physical equipment. They would show up and say, hey, you guys need some more amps. We'll go back to our studio and, you know, we'll get you those Marshalls or Billy Joe brought his guitars and put them into the show. So they were incredibly supportive in that way. That's actually an interesting thing. As the set designer, there were other elements that were being brought on stage in order to serve the music. I mean, it's it's all there. The band's on stage. The music director's off stage left. Um, you have the practical issues of, of, of amps and guitars and, and all of these things. How much of that was designed and how much of that was necessity? Um, well, sometimes they say that uh, form follows function. And I think in this case that would be true in some ways that one of the first things that we knew was that the band was going to be on stage. So you start with putting the band on stage and then you create the environment around that. Hmm. And, you know, I was like, bring it on, just bring me another amp, bring me another piece of equipment. Um, You know, when you go see a rock show, part of what impresses you is the scale of the sound and that bass kind of coursing through your veins and you can feel the music and I was very open to having that kind of equipment and that kind of musical presence in the physical space. Hmm. Well, we'll talk more about rock musicals in a little bit. Um, Let's talk a little about how you came to theater. You grew up in Montreal Mm -hmm. and when did you start getting interested in theater and what was your initial interest? I, I was actually initially interested in dance. Um, I grew up doing ballet and I remember seeing a film called The Turning Point with Michael Brishnikoff and Shirley MacLaine and I remember something about the performance and the performers and the degree of passion they had for the art form of dance really struck me and I remember coming home, I think I was 10 And I remember just crying to my mother and saying, Mom, I have to be a dancer. I have to be a dancer. And I continued to dance. I danced with Le Grand Ballet Canadien. I studied quite seriously. Um, And then as, as it became that moment where, as a teenager, you have to really make a choice. And it was either going to be all dance all the time or open yourself up to some other things. I, I realized that that maybe I wasn't quite ready to make that solitary choice. So I started doing theater. I had an amazing uh, teacher who taught Shakespeare and produced plays at the high school. It was fantastic, Mr. Whitman. And then I continued to study acting, but sort of knew early on that maybe the life of an actor wasn't quite for me. Um, being on stage was was exciting and fun, but the idea of auditioning and having to kind of expose yourself in that way felt inconsistent with who I was. Yet you said 
before we started recording that you were had a small part in a film, a John Sayles film with with Betty Buckley. I mean, well, because those things my thing has always accident. been, but it my it, that actually did happen by accident. Um, my boyfriend was an actor, and I was sitting in the room as he was going to an audition, and one of the casting directors just said, "Would you come in and?" And do this. And I said, okay. My thing has always been if somebody wants to invite me to perform, then sure, I'd try that. But if I have to audition to perform and, you know, just. Mm, That is a prerequisite in most cases. It's it's a prerequisite. So that was the part that I could never quite get my head around. Um, So I have performed in different different scenarios at NYU and and Montreal. But. I also just felt like sometimes as a performer, you're brought into the process when so many other things have been conceived and decided. And the more time I've spent in the theater and even as I was studying, I just had this feeling that I wanted to be in from the beginning. I wanted to be involved with the choices that really shaped the world that were going to to be at play. So where did – I mean you haven't – talked and maybe it's stuff you were doing at the same time and I just haven't asked the right question but you know were you painting were you making really cool dioramas for you know project at school how did you evolve to the visual arts because we very often hear about people who went to art school and became performers I don't often hear about performers who move towards the artistic the, the kind of design expression mm-hmm. Um, I think that, no, I was never, I didn't really do a lot of art. I didn't really do sculpture. I just, I was drawn to dance. I was drawn to theater. I experimented with performing. But I often tell people that if I wasn't a set designer, I would not be any other kind of designer. I have very little interest in interior design or film design. I actually am not really that interested in design at all. But I love telling a story and it just sort of happens that it it turns out that my role in the storytelling process is as the designer and that's somehow how I serve the process but um, I think that I yeah I you know people always say oh would you come over and decorate my apartment I'm like well actually I'm a terrible designer and a terrible decorator but if you want to give me a play about your apartment then maybe I could sort of help you figure it out (laughs) but when it came time, whenever you made the decision to pursue this, were there particular media that you liked to work with in terms of conceiving sets? I mean, there, at some point you had to start drawing or painting or clipping or yeah. whatever it was. I mean, was. once I – once actually a teacher of mine, Victor Garraway, um, was teaching me theater and I started helping him – put his shows together. I was stage managing and I was working backstage with him. And he said, you should be a sonographer. I said, what? A stenographer? (laughs) And he said, no, no, a sonographer. I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, it's the person that that makes the physical environment of the play. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of amazing. And I dropped all of my English classes and I transferred into the theater department. And there I started taking photography and art Drawing, painting, draping, all of the classes that one does need to take to pursue this kind of career. And was just really excited about the diversity. I mean, I think being a designer is just an incredibly fun 
profession because you do do all kinds of different things. So I was just sort of excited by the novelty of it and the opportunity to try so many different things. And um, yeah, that was just that was just kind of how it how it started. So your undergraduate degree ultimately was a theater degree, a design yeah. degree. Yeah, theater design, but you know, with in an undergraduate program with a lot of variety. We did, it was costume design, set design, lighting design. You took directing classes, acting classes. It was a little bit more of a kind of liberal arts program. Hmm. And then a teacher there suggested that I consider graduate school and consider going to the States because they didn't actually have any graduate programs in Canada. Really? I mean, that's that was going to be my next question mm-hmm. because certainly there's plenty of Canadian theater, but at least at the time. Do you know if, if graduate programs have developed for design in Canada? I know that they were trying to establish one in Toronto, but I'm not sure that huh. that has actually come to pass. Now, so. had you been down to the States much before this? Mm, I have a, a family that lives in the United States, so I had come sort of every summer. But no, I really hadn't spent much time here. And I have to say it it felt like uh, it felt like a journey. I remember my mom driving me here in a pickup truck and you know packing all of my belongings into the back of the truck and bringing me to New York and delivering me here and it feeling like I had just come to another planet. Well, how did you come? How did you decide? I mean, obviously you had to be accepted, but you ultimately came to NYU did, to get your graduate yeah. degree. But certainly here in the U.S., there are numerous graduate programs mm-hmm. in design. So why the de- why the New York decision? I think at the time it was pretty clear that the two top schools were Yale or NYU. And I interviewed at both and I was accepted at NYU. And that was the choice. That and I made. living in New York is a very different experience from living in New Haven. For, yes, exactly. For a few years. Yeah. Having had what you said was almost a liberal arts degree in theater mm-hmm. and all of the disciplines, what was it like to then have your education so directed and focused on scenic design? That's that's a really great question because I, I was a little surprised when I got here that the training was more focused and specialized um, because Canada does sort of follow a more European tradition of the idea that a designer is a production designer and might do multiple elements. And in in New York, there was definitely a sense that you were one or the other. You were a costume designer or a set designer or a lighting designer. So at first I was kind of confused. People would say, well, what are you? Said, well, I'm a designer. And they said, well, do you do sets, costumes, or lights? But uh, as I studied, I just – I did feel like being a set designer was the, the the better fit in terms of the process and not always, but sometimes the set designer is one of the first people brought onto the project. And I just – I like being there from the very beginning. Hmm. I really do. I like being with the director from as early on as possible and imagining what 
what might be. It's interesting because what you say about people being tracked, yet you do have designers. I certainly know years ago I worked on a show with Kevin Adams mm-hmm. who did the lights for American Idiot and Kevin has done both scenic design and lighting design. Marina Dragici is nominated this year for the Tonys for both the set and costume design mm-hmm. of Fella. So it's not unheard of. It's was not it, unheard was it of. School that, but it, was it school that tracked you or was it just the general people think you should make your choice? I think it was school, but school as a reflection of what happens typically in America. I think in other countries it's more common that people do design in multiple disciplines. But for whatever reason, I mean, I think sometimes just it's that in in America, sometimes projects happen without as much development as they do in other places, and there's not quite as much time. It's harder to do both, um, whereas sometimes in Canada or in Europe, there are longer development times, and so you can kind of do both things simultaneously. So it's sort of, in some cases, it's just a practical issue. It's, I, I think a lot of times it's a practical issue. Huh. And the couple of times, I think maybe twice, I've done both. I've done costumes and set design. And I just missed the other voice of the other designer so much hmm. that I decided I would rather forego the the control of the whole picture for having the input of of my co-designer and my collaborator to you know talk me through the the moments of doubt you know yeah. sometimes you think well i'm not really sure that's the right choice and then you can turn to your fellow designer and say what do you think do you think the blue is better or the red is better but when it's just you then it's a little harder to figure out sometimes mm-hmm. Now, while you were at NYU, I believe I read one of your key teachers at that time was John Conklin, mm-hmm. whose work I know well. And I always think of John as a bit of a mad scientist and <laughs> yes. a designer, both both in in his approach and in his persona. Mm-hmm. Um, but was there was there any particular learning that you took away from NYU that really set you on your path, mm-hmm. um, either an aesthetic that you discovered or Uh, a philosophy that they have in the training? I definitely think that John was extremely inspiring because of his curiosity and his anarchy and his passion. He was never afraid to tear something apart and was playful and joyous in the work. And I think that that spirit of of daring and adventure are 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 the things that I'm most grateful for from my time with him. So when you got out of school, very often the typical route is someone becomes an assistant mm-hmm. to a designer. Was that was that your path? I did have the good fortune of assisting Tony Walton briefly my first summer out of school. And then I had met Mark Lamos at the Clam Bake, the infamous Clam Bake. Well, people won't know what no. the Clam Bake is, so you <laughs> um, need to explain it's that. It's sort of a, a design exhibition. Graduate designers exhibit their work um, as they're completing the program, and they invite directors and other designers to come see what they've done. And Mark came to one of these exhibitions and then invited me to interview with him at Hartford Stage to 
potentially design a project with him. And I think Mark was a, a little bit tentative about hiring me because I had just graduated. But I, I suspect that Tony Walton got on the phone with him and said, I have a good feeling about her and I think you can – I have a sneaky suspicion Conklin did too. Oh, well, well maybe. Only because of the relationship <laughs> yeah. that John had to Hartford right. Stage where right. he'd really begun his right. career. That's very possible, yeah. So so that was Tartuffe. That's where that we was first Tartuffe. met. That was Tartuffe, yeah. Um, what was the experience of having your first professional design gig? Well, I was incredibly excited to work with Mark. I mean, John Conklin had talked about Mark, so, you know, as a student, we had sort of heard about their work as um, as as they had talked about it. And, um, you know, I just really didn't expect to be so fortunate to have that opportunity uh, right after graduating. And um, I remember that I... I didn't know Mark very well, and so one of the first things that I did was I wrote him a very long letter um, about the play we were doing, Richard III. And so I just sort of got out these big pieces of paper, and I just started writing all of these things down about the play and about different scenes. And then he took my letter, and he wrote on top of it and responded in writing form to the ideas on the page and then send them back to me. And that was our first um, mm. our first way of working together. And I still have those pages and really enjoy looking back at those sometimes. When you went to do the, the first professional work, did you feel that you were fully prepared? Oh, no, absolutely school? not. <laughs> I was terrified. <laughs> I was absolutely terrified. Um, you know, I'd never hired an assistant. I, I, that part of it, you know, just sort of how you, how you really um, manage the kind of infrastructure of, of getting the drafting done and the models. And uh, I was also, I was fortunate enough, in fact, um, I had also interviewed with Joseph Chaikin. In fact, I had gotten a call. I got a call on one day from Joseph Chaikin saying, would you come and interview to do this project we did text for nothing. And on the next day, I got a call from Hartford Stage saying, would you come and interview with Mark Lamos? I was sort of out of my mind with delight. And I went to Hartford Stage and I walked into Candace's office, who was the production manager. And on 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 a cork board next to her desk was a poem by Joseph Chaikin, and it was a poem he had written when he accepted the Bessie Award, and it was after he had aphasia, which he had as a, as a result of a stroke that he had had. And it talked about language and how he wished he could say no, but he only had the word yes. And I, I asked Candace if I could have a copy of that poem because I was interviewing with Joe the next day. So I'd gone to this interview with Mark, and then I'd gotten this poem that Joe had written, and then the next day I went and interviewed with him, and then a few days later I got the call that I had had gotten both jobs. So suddenly I, I was just, you know, my students sometimes ask me, well, how did you get your beginning? And I said, you know what? I have no idea. It was just a stroke of luck being in the right place at the right time and this incredible confluence of circumstances. But um, it also meant that suddenly I was doing these two projects and 
I had to hire assistants and I didn't know really how to do that and how much you should pay them. And, you know, the business aspect of being a designer is something that you don't get a lot of training for in school. And that can be a little bit overwhelming at first. And there's also a time management issue because so often you're working as you were instantaneously on more than one project at once. Yeah, which you're used to doing in school to some extent, but you're used to doing it all yourself. And now you're starting to involve other people in your process, not just the, the, the designers that you need to help you, but then you're working with the prop shop and the technical director and, you know, it's just just learning how to be a delegator and a communicator and um, and a project manager. So I definitely felt like I didn't know everything, but I was certainly up for the challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, inevitably, when I talk to people who've worked in regional theaters around the country, it's very hard to pull together a complete list of everything they've done. So I can't go through all of your shows, but I want to ask if there are a few projects that over what's now coming up on 20 years of professional work um, stand out for you. Mm-hmm. Are there a few? I know yeah. the old thing of they're all your children, you love yeah. them all equally, but if you had to choose a few, a few particular projects. Well, I do think that Text for Nothing, that project with Joe stands out for two reasons. One, that I've always enjoyed working on projects that have a direct connection with the physicality of the performer. And in that case, it was Bill Irwin, Solo, and the set. And those were sort of the two the two elements that were on the stage. And we also were able to build the set during rehearsal. So that relationship grew in an extremely organic way. When you say build the set during a rehearsal, you mean you you hadn't completed the design? I mean that we actually built the set, you know, as they were rehearsing so that they could rehearse on the set. Ah. So that it wasn't what happens often in which they rehearse in a rehearsal studio. Right. It wasn't with, just tape on a floor. It wasn't just tape on a floor. It was the physical environment. Mm-hmm. And when you have the opportunity to do that, it really does create a marriage between the performance and the physical environment that is different than what you get when you spend six weeks rehearsing on tape. And Bill's process is so physical. So physical. Even in roles where he speaks. Certainly right. his own creations are often nonverbal, but... It all seems to come out of where where his body mm-hmm. is in relation to itself mm-hmm. and everything else around mm-hmm. it. So that would seem a necessity. That was here in New York. That was, that here was in New the York. public. Yeah. So that's a good showcase right off the mm-hmm. bat. But but again, a, a few others along the way. That um, also there was a production of a play called True Love by Chuck Mee. And that was an instance where we were looking for a space and True Love took us. They said, well, we heard about this new theater that's being built. And we went over there and they were in the process of taking over a zipper factory and they were about to transform it into a classic black box theater. But thankfully, they hadn't gotten very far in that process. And there was still equipment left over and shelving left over from the zipper factory that the space had been. And we walked in and just said immediately, stop what you're doing. This is the space we want. 
don't turn it into a black box theater. We would like to take everything that's here and reconfigure it and create a theater space amidst what this space is now. And so working with um, this amazing guy, Lee, um, who was a kind of contractor and like outsider artist, we went to Staten Island and we pulled car seats out of the junkyard and we created the audience seating out of car seats and also we took all the sewing tables and reconfigured them into additional audience seating. We took hubcaps and made lights out of them. We took all the shelving from the zipper factory and sort of lined it up on the back wall. We brought a car into the space. We left it all raw and messy. We built the bar area out of... Well, as I say, the bar area was as designed yeah. as, as any theater I've ever seen. Yeah. It felt like you were walking into some combination of a set or just the strangest East Village club you've yeah. ever seen. <laughs> well, and that just all happened impromptly with everything that was there. And Lee and I just sort of worked together and said, mm. well, let's grab this and turn it into that. And, um, and then, you know, kind of beautifully, the environment that we created for this specific production, which was True Love, then lived on and became actually – the identity of the space and then other shows went on to happen there um there was a show called betty and um you know i'm not even sure what else happened well, there were a but bunch the, of things a got bunch done of over things the years that got done over the years until it, yeah they couldn't sustain it but so it's not very to- often that you get to actually create the entire Space. Well, you designed the theater. We designed the theater. The space, the whole thing. But that was specific to the show. It was specific to the show. And then other shows went in there. I mean, I saw a presentation of Vita in Virginia there, (laughs) which didn't exactly fit aesthetically with the world you created. Have you had the opportunity to do environmental work? Do you you have an interest in that? I definitely have an interest in it, but I think that was the only time that I've really – I've had that specifically an opportunity to just take over a space completely. Usually I've worked in more traditional situations where the theater is intact and you just go in and can take over the stage, but not the whole building. You've, you've talked about Mark Lamus. You've talked about Joe Chaikin. Are there other directors? And of course, we've spoken of Michael Mayer mm-hmm. and will again shortly. Are there other directors with whom you've, you've had sustained relationships? Uh, Jim Houghton, who runs the Signature Theater. I had the good fortune of meeting him doing a show as part of the signature season, not as a a director-designer relationship, but he brought me on to do a play there. It was the Sam Shepard season. And so I met him as an artistic director and did a play there. And then he invited me to work with him as a designer on an Arthur Miller play at the Guthrie Theater. Um, And I was delighted to discover that he was as inspired and kind a director as he was the 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 voice of the signature theater and so he and I did that play together and then we worked on burn this right. which was also definitely a highlight and we uh, drove all over new york city and looked at all kinds of different apartments and you know went on all kinds of adventures trying to find what the space for those people would be mm-hmm. Now let's come back to Michael Mayer and Spring Awakening because certainly that's a show that many people have had an opportunity to see now that it's 
been done. It was done off Broadway, several years on Broadway, national tour. What uh, again? Some of the same questions I, I asked you about American Idiot, except that certainly there was a script. It mm-hmm. was not found music. Mm-hmm. Stephen Sater and Duncan Sheik were writing a show. When I saw it, uh, and it was a show that was being developed for a long time. Mm-hmm. I know there were a lot of workshops and things. When I finally saw it, it was the production down at the Atlantic, and it seemed in many ways to be utilizing the space. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why I asked about environmental, because I looked at it and said, I'm not sure how much of this is designed and how much of it is using that former church environment that exists at the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So, so what was the process of turning that into a set? Well... It was a it was a great experience actually because Michael had been working on it for seven years, so when he invited me to join in, he already had stacks of images and research that he had been collecting over the last seven years. So the first thing I did was I just sort of embraced all of all of what he brought to the table, and I turned all of that work into collages and sort of figured out how all of those pieces spoke more specifically in a narrative or storyboarded way to to the event. So, oh, well, that picture belongs in this scene and that picture belongs in that scene. So that was kind of the first thing we did. And in a way, I just sort of organized all of these responses that he had had. And then we we went into the Atlantic knowing a couple of things. One we really wanted to create audience seating on stage so that we could provide lower-cost tickets for some of the audience that we might be trying to reach out to. So it was not an aesthetic opinion, not an aesthetic choice. It was an audience development choice. It began as audience development and supporting sound. We knew that we wanted to be able to put a mixing board in the back of the theater more typical of how a rock show might mix sound. So those two pieces, both wanting to mix sound in a certain way and create lower price seating for younger audience members, that defined that right from the beginning. And if the managing director hears we need to lose a dozen seats in the house, yeah. he says, do you realize how much revenue we're yeah. going to lose? So you had a practical response We had a practical to response to that. So we started with knowing there was going to be audience on stage. And Michael also came to the table in addition to this, the, all of these images that he had. He said, I just I have this image of a square of dirt and 12 chairs. And that was also a kind of primary impulse on his part from the beginning. So, you know, that sort of created this um, – the kind of square of playing space in the middle of these audience chairs on stage – and then just looking at all the collages and looking at all the all the the kinds of environments that the play takes place in. I mean, it talks a lot about education. It talks a lot about religion. And then we just sort of looked around at the space and said, well, actually, we're in a church. So why do we need to reinvent anything? We've got this structure at our at our at our feet to use. So. That was just – I think that was very lucky. But when the show moved mm-hmm. to a conventional proscenium house, clearly you did not have 
an enveloping space in the fact that the brick walls of the church that we sat in at the Atlantic, which went all the way back, simply weren't going to be there Mm -hmm. when you were in a theater. How much did you have to reconceive Spring Awakening to put it into a conventional Broadway setting? Not as much as we thought we would have to. I mean, we started feeling committed to the idea that that brick surround had 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 been in in service to the play in the way that we we wanted, and so we started in the model by just putting that environment on this on the stage, and then, you know, I actually built. I don't always do this, but I built a, a very fleshed out replica of the of the O'Neill Theater and looked at all of the ornate detail and the seating and and built a full-scale model of the house in addition to the stage area. And what we found was that, you know, the the play also it takes place in the Victorian era. A lot of the scenes happen in parlors, in in domestic settings, and that the music is quite beautiful. There's a lot of uh, very lush orchestrations and that we were concerned about moving this piece that had happened in this kind of raw, unfinished, you know, kind of slightly falling apart church and what was going to happen when we moved it into this landmark preserved ornate theater. But actually what we found is that 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 spoke to a kind of underlying beauty in not just the music but in – in some of the ideas of the story and that, um, you know, there's a song at the end called Purple Summer and it just sort of speaks to the idea that, you know, you have these life experiences and then you grow from them and you transcend loss and, um, and, and, and the heart is healed in some way. And so suddenly being in this really beautiful environment was actually sort of a, a nice development and 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 felt like it just spoke to different parts of the play. Hmm. I mean, there are certainly people who draw parallels between the experience of going to theater and going to church at times. Right, yes. So yeah. I guess it's not so, so alien. I, I want to take a, a quick left turn to ask you, it strikes me that while we see a few more now, we don't see a lot of female set designers getting a chance to work in the commercial world. We do have, as I mentioned earlier, Marina Dragici, who's done Fella, uh, Anna Luizos, but it still seems to be a bit of a boys' club. Is that something that you're aware of or concerned about, or am I making this up? I'm aware of it, except I do see so much progress. I think there are just more women in the field all the time. So I'm not concerned about it because I think it's naturally changing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know when I first came out of school, there was Heidi and Heidi Heidi Landisman, Heidi Landisman, um, Adrian Lobel, Mm -hmm. uh, Marjorie Kellogg. You know, I sort of knew that these women were part of that community. I hadn't studied with them at school, so I didn't really know them, but I knew they were there. But now I teach at NYU, and my classes are predominantly female. 
And so I know that there's 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 many more women coming into the field, and it's just a matter of time, I believe. Mm-hmm. So I'm not concerned. I'm heartened, but I do feel. Uh, very proud to be uh, to be a woman in the field, and I know that sometimes I'm I'm breaking new ground, but less as a woman, I think sometimes, and more as somebody that has a family. I think that my students have come to me and commented that it's heartening for them to see somebody working in theater who also has kids. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and sometimes people wonder because what we do is so enveloping and our hours are long and our work is intense that people wonder if they can have a family as well and I've I've met so many great family people who make theater as well hmm. and um, and I'm glad to be one of them too well let me ask you about the teaching for a minute um, when did you start teaching well I taught at Princeton a couple of years um, I guess about Maybe seven years ago, I taught my first class. And then five years ago, I started teaching at NYU, which was surreal at first. You know, if I could have imagined when I was a first year set design student in my class, just tired and terrified and trying so hard to to do a good job, if I could have in a moment paused and looked ahead and said, oh, you know what, like 15 years from now, you'll be teaching this class. So don't sweat it. That mm. That would have been that would have been pretty amazing. And now even still, sometimes I, I walk through the halls and I can't believe that, you know, once I was a student there. Are there things that you think you teach that you weren't taught when you were studying? You commented about going into the real world and some of the things they don't prepare you for. So are there things you think you're preparing people for that you didn't get? Well, I, I do try to talk – I try to talk a little bit about the lifestyle of a designer. I think that it's one thing to study design and it's another thing to live as a designer. So I don't know that I teach it necessarily, but I try to at least have conversations so that people are maybe not surprised when they first get out of school – you know, sometimes you're, you're part of this community in school and then you graduate and you start traveling around to different theaters and working with people maybe that you haven't met before and staying in strange hotels. And it can be disorienting and kind of lonely at first. But then after you've done a, f- a few shows, you realize that you keep coming across the same people and that actually the whole theater community is connected and that you're part of a larger fabric. But at first, you're so connected to the fabric of school that then when you go out into the fabric of of the larger, regional, um, national theater community, it's disorienting. So I try to just assure people that, you know, just give it a few years to kind of find your tribe and find your place, and then, and then you'll, know, you'll know where you belong. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about Theater for One. Mm-hmm. I normally am fairly dispassionate on this show (laughs) because I don't want to editorialize about work that I've seen. But I had the experience of simply walking by and going, oh, here's that theater for one thing I read about. And I stood in line for probably a good half hour, 35 minutes because there were people ahead of me. And I go into this what looks like a combination peep show booth, uh, 
packing box for scenery in the middle of Times Square and a panel is drawn and for three and a half minutes it's me and in my case uh, a young pretty blonde woman playing the ukulele singing this lovely song at me and it was simultaneously the most engaged I have ever been with any performance or performer in my life because there was nothing else. I couldn't even glance away. In a regular theater, I'll look at my playbill. I'll see what else is going on. I had to look right at the eyes of this young woman singing just for me, and it made me tremendously uncomfortable because I couldn't look away, and I had to engage where did this come from, <laughs> this theater for one? <laughs> oh, that's so good to hear that you had that experience. Um, I I had heard that James Terrell had been designing churches. And you said earlier that we often think of theaters as sacred spaces and as a kind of church. And... When I heard about him designing a church, I thought, oh, I would like to design a church. You know, I, I spend all my time making these theatrical sacred spaces. How great would it be to make to make a church? And then I thought, well, I'm not an architect and I don't practice religion. I think it's very unlikely that anybody will invite me to make a church. And then I thought, well, if I made a church for one, I could build it myself. And... This idea of church for one was floating around. And then I went to a wedding, and the, uh, the wedding involved a magician as part of the ceremony. And then afterwards, he was milling about in the crowd, and he came up to me, and he stood right in front of me, and he did a magic trick right next to me. And I wrote my name on a card and then he put it in a bottle and it sort of disappeared. And then he somehow made it appear out of his mouth. And this nine of hearts with my name out, my name written on it came out of his mouth and he handed it to me. And I just, I started crying because it was just the most beautiful, intimate experience of an event that we normally witness in a public way. And I, I literally, I just thought like, oh my God, magic, magic. It is gorgeous. And frankly, I just sort of became addicted to that feeling. And I thought, well, how can I make that happen again? What can I do to recreate that incredibly intimate, sensual, performative experience? And then I was reading... Um, something from New York Theatre Workshop, and they said, we're looking for people who would like to experiment with new ideas. And I thought, well, I should really, I should come up with something, and what could I do? And then I thought, well, maybe if I made a theatre for one instead of a church for one, I could get that back. I could get that experience of having a really private moment with a performer and with their art. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, is it a confessional? Is it a peep show? And it's important to me that it is a theater, that what happens in the space is it is about the two people in the room, but it's also about 
the artwork that's happening that it's 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 a genuine theatrical or musical or poetic or choreographic experience that it's it's actually a triad it's you and it's me and it's it's the piece happening together and you've planted this booth now you developed this over time but mm-hmm. most recently you've you've planted this booth in the middle of times square mm-hmm. you're down the block from the TKTS booth. Mm-hmm. We walked here together today. There was a giant bottle of Corona <laughs> in which people, you know, were going inside and having their picture taken by girls in bikinis. And there was yet a different woman opening her trench coat and being photographed wearing a bikini. And I'm sure the naked cowboy was somewhere oh, yeah. nearby. Your experience suddenly isolates people mm-hmm. in the midst of all of this. Mm-hmm. Is that intentional, that it suddenly totally takes them out of the hubbub? Or does this – would this play the same in any environment? Well, in development, I had done it at New York Theatre Workshop, uh, at Princeton University, at the O'Neill Center, at Juilliard, in academic theaters. It, the piece had always been in another theater – and it was not my idea, actually, to do it in Times Square. The Times Square Alliance for Public Art found the project online and invited me to do it in Times Square. And at first, it just seemed perfect in that I had started all of my research touring the sex shops in Times Square. And so it just seemed like a natural evolution that now the project was coming full circle and was back in Times Square. But I was definitely apprehensive about whether or not it would be possible to create an intimate and private experience within the chaos of Times Square. So that was the largest question mark that we had going into this residency. But what we have found is that actually that juxtaposition only heightens the experience, that you are surrounded by the cacophony of visual and sonic information and then you go into this space which tries to replicate enough of what we normally expect. It has enough of the theatrical conventions. You go in, you have a seat, maybe there's music playing, there's house lights, it's comfortable, it's red, it's velvet and then the music fades, the lights fade and the curtain or in this case the slider open. So that you you feel like you know how to do this. You've gone to the theater. You know how to be an audience member. And you can relax enough to be available to the performer, not so terrified that you really are paralyzed from having a response. I, I guess I felt both. Yeah. Which, because well, I was so too. unused to being – that close to a performer right. performing only for me. Right. We didn't say that, of course, the performers themselves are a variety. Mm-hmm. Some people get monologues. Some people get a song. Mm-hmm. There are all of these different things. The economics <laughs> of doing this kind of project, now, it's because it's a funded art project. Right. People just line up yeah. and they can do it. Is there an opportunity? Do you see a way for this to be done more widely so more people can experience it? Well, I, I, have, I have five ideas, actually. Um, I think that it does exist as a portable 
project. It could tour festivals. It could tour all over the city and continue to explore whether or not, you know, people would pay tickets, if we could receive donations. I think that it has tremendous potential in terms of private events and you could use it. Um, in my case, I'm actually on Saturday night um, because this show is not airing right away. I can say this, but my husband is turning 40 and he's an actor and I'm bringing him to the booth under the pretense that he will be performing, but I'm going to put him into the audience chair and then bring his friends and family members into the booth one at a time to share a favorite memory of their experience with him. So I feel this like is your life. This in, is this is your life in theater for one. So I think you could rent it to people to use in a private manner. You could write a play for someone. You could commission mm. a particular piece of work some, for someone. I think that in the public schools, it could be used to teach the performing arts. Many schools can't afford a a full theater, but in this case, you can learn about sets and lighting and sound design and direction and acting because even though it's a, a reduced space, the the job is not reduced. the The degree to which you create theater is not reduced in any way. So you could you could teach about the theater in this way. Um, philanthropically, I feel like if you can sell Hugh Jackman's T-shirt for thousands of dollars then what would somebody pay to be in a booth alone with Denzel Washington or Liev Shriver? And could you use that to raise money for Broadway Cares or other institutions? So I think it has has fundraising possibilities. It has possibilities in the public sector, in the private sector. My other fantasy is that we would build a building – in which there were a hundred theater for one booths, so you could go in and choose which experience you wanted to have, or you could go to many of them, and they could all be related uh, dramaturgically in some way. So mm-hmm. there's sort of a lot of different ideas I have about evolving the project. Well, I certainly hope that many more people have a chance to see it. And from the intimacy of theater for one to the ongoing, soaring, musical, and scenic heights of American idiot Christine Jones, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Tim Whitney. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.